You're listening to Pair of Programmers. I'm Christopher Wolf, And I'm John Fisher. In the show, we explore different topics that software developers encounter in their careers. The format of the show is that one of us researches a topic, and the other reacts with insights from their experience. Tweet us at Podcast to send us topics you'd like to hear discussed. We're recording this on Sunday, June 7th. DC just had a, a bunch of protests because of the, the murder of George Floyd. Before him, Breonna Taylor. It's been a, a trend that needs to stop. On Paraprogrammers, we don't just talk about technology, but also give career insights. We invited our friends Kofi and Matt to share their experiences as black engineers in a predominantly white industry. Kofi, Matt, thanks for joining, especially now. I think it's very important to have this conversation and to educate. So obviously it's a very stressful time. So yeah, just thank you again for joining. Really appreciate it. No problem. So the first thing I wanted to do was just to go through the history of some of the outstanding black and minority, either software developers or people in IT. And then after that, we're going to go through some like stats on pay differences, pay gaps, and then maybe try to analyze some of those statistics from like a, what's the underlying cause there. And then we're just going to open it up to general discussion just to get thoughts and feelings and, and all that kind of stuff. So if you have any input on this, that's awesome. Please jump in anytime. I know sometimes I get kind of long-winded, but I'm going to try to move through the, the first part to really get into the meat of the discussion. A few of the people that I'm going to talk about here featured in a movie called Hidden Figures, uh, which is awesome. Um, if you get a chance, um, check that out. Um, but the first person we're going to talk about is Melba Roy Mutton. Um, she was a mathematician born in 1910. Just for context, 1910, that's 20, only 20 years after the punch card system was invented. Um, and she eventually headed the group of what were called the mathematicians at NASA. I'm sorry, the group was called the computers. They were a group of mathematicians. And in, in, that was in 1960. She was eventually the head of the computer programmer. She was the head computer programmer, sorry, um, and the program production section chief at Goddard Space Flight Center. And I believe she was also featured in Hidden Figures. Um, the next person, Dorothy Vaughn, she was a software engineer, graduated valedictorian of the high school, and she had a similar path to Melba, but she was eventually the supervisor for West Area Computer Section of NASA. Um, and this is when she taught, she taught herself Fortran. So like I remember having my first computer science class was in Fortran, and I was like, this is a mess. Like, I can't make <laughs> yeah. any sense of this. And just to have somebody to, like, teach themselves that while, you know, while going through all of the issues of racism and discrimination, it's just, that's pretty incredible. Um, so the, the next person is Otis um, Boykin. He was an inventor. He... Graduated undergrad from Illinois, and Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago. And then he was pursuing his graduate degree. And after two years, he had to drop out in 1947. Um, 
because he was unable to afford tuition. Despite that, um, so like you, you drop out of grad school because you, you can't put up the money. Despite that, he died with 26 patents to his name. And so like, I have a, I have a degree and like, <laughs> like I can't figure out. You how have to get zero my... patents, John. Yeah, zero <laughs> patents to my name. Sometimes I can't figure out how to get my computer to work. So. <laughs> um, so the the next and last person that I wanted to talk about was Alexa Kennedy. She was the first African American neurosurgeon in the United States. She specialized in pediatric neurosurgery. Uh, and she eventually became the director of neurosurgery at the Children's Hospital. I believe that's here in D.C. Um, and then under her guidance, the department was soon viewed as one of the best in the country. So those are just some of the accomplishments that I wanted to talk about. And I think it's really important to, I think there, there are two ways you could interpret this. Be like, oh, like, look, see, like, people can make progress. It's, you know, it's easy. You just have to you know, like bootstrap yourself up and do it. But those accomplishments were made in the face of like such headwind, right? Like they had, you know, discrimination of all sorts going against them. They had just like the history of their, their parents and their grandparents. Um, resources. What's that? Lack of resources. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and like I, I've, I've heard the the phrase um, like black tax before, um, which I think is like a very blunt way of saying that like in some ways like your your past there's there is yeah just like a lack of resources that's been accumulated um, over time, and it's just one more thing that you have to fight against. Yeah, and I think just to chime in, I think it just shows you how strong these people are, these men and women are, too, despite the game really being rigged, where the education is not the same, redlining kept good homes from going to good people, that they were able to understand and recognize that education is a path to generational wealth. And I think that's a lot of the things that I see from these and these people in STEM is that they understood education will get them far. And so I hate the term pull yourself up by your bootstrap just because it, it just doesn't recognize, like you said, all the, the systemic racism yep. that, you know, proliferates this country. But throughout that and overcoming it, I think that's great. Um, I think some people I saw was a part of the kind of quote unquote like the hidden figures group was uh, a woman named Gladys West, Dr. Gladys West. She uh, was credited for basically creating the GPS, which is crazy. Um, there is a uh, another woman, Marianne Croak, and she is credited for furthering and initiating the development of VOIP, which is Voice Over Internet Protocol. So, without her, we wouldn't probably be having this conversation right now. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just really cool, and I wish there was more mythology and more um storytelling about these people like you always hear about the elon musk you hear about mm -hmm. the sergey brins you hear about the zuckerbergs you hear yeah. a lot of the, you hear a lot of people in our day and culture who are credited with i wouldn't say their inventions but these ideas these products that they've created they get so much credit for it but then when you see african-americans 
who are creating just the same amount of things like you you never know that like if mm -hmm. i like a lot of times if i would go and look at you know 10 people in a row regardless of color regardless of you know echo echo uh echo socioeconomic background like who invented the the stoplight you know mm -hmm. like unless you really pay attention during black Heritage month you probably wouldn't know it's a black man it was garrett morgan mm -hmm. so it's one of those things where a lot of the inventions that black people get they are just kind of taken and then not really accredited back to the the people who originally created it, unless you're like george washington carver because he just locked down the peanut like he's like no one's doing any inventions with a peanut unless it's george washington carver you know so mm -hmm. that's just my two cents about it yeah awesome thank you um all right cool so next up we're gonna go through some of the um current day people um notable people like matt said this is like there are millions of of uh, these um, cases we're just going to go through a few of them so actually I've, I've noticed um just like in my research um i've noticed that a lot of the people that i pulled out that i thought were very notable uh, are female in addition um and i think it's really important to 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 recognize the the added burden that they have as well um i think part of that is because of the hidden figures movie really brought those um, people to light um, but it's still pretty amazing. So the first person is Erica Baker. And she worked at Slack, Patreon, and then Google. She gained, she gained prominence in 2015 when she started an internet spreadsheet where Google employees um, listed their salary um, and, and their, their ethnic background to really get an idea of, like, the pay gap, the, the pay disparity um, between different, different people. Um, and so she eventually left Google after she created that spreadsheet. I believe that was in protest. I, I didn't look that up. So then she started the Real Diversity Numbers tag on Twitter in 2015, uh, which trended for a while. And uh, she currently works at Microsoft. So I think just having that data available um, and like putting it out there as like, this is what's happening. Like that's, that's really impactful. I like, I just think about uh, where I work today. And like, if I were to do that, the, the amount of <clears throat> kind of like vitriol that, that you might get from doing that. And like, I'm the person that should be doing it because I have white privilege and like, I should be the one to take that stand. Um, so it's, it's pretty amazing to see that. Um, the next person is Lindsay Scott. Um, so they started programming at the age of 12 by writing um, games for their TI-89 uh, graphing calculator. Um, so like, do you guys remember graphing calculators back in the day? Mm -hmm. Yo, I definitely <laughs> remember Phoenix. I would play Phoenix nonstop. Like little, it was like a basic Galaga shooting game. I played oh, that nice. nonstop. I think it was almost to my detriment. I think I used that more as like a Game Boy in class than I used it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> graphing, like, you know, whatever the derivatives and integrals yeah. and all that. Yeah, calculus teachers like, wow, like, these kids are really good. Like, they're just like punching in their calculators all day. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, for me, it was uh, Block Dude. I loved playing Block Dude. <laughs> yeah, I remember that one too. Yeah, I actually do remember playing Block Dude. That was actually very tough too. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Yep. Yeah, so, 
so like I never even had the, the, the thought to like that I could program some of that stuff that I could like hack my window that mm-hmm. so the fact that she did that when she was 12 is just um, pretty incredible um, in addition to being smart um, she's a model and she was a former track and field athlete um, so she's got the brains and the brawn um, <laughs> she is the author of multiple iOS program tutorials on raywenderlich.com. And in 2011, she started her own company. And now she believes she, she left that company. I believe she left that company because now she is the lead iOS software engineer at a, a company called Rallybound, uh, which I believe does some sort of work related to NGOs. All right, cool. So those are the, the notable people that I wanted to go through, both historic and and current day. Um, so can I, uh, before you transition on, can I do one more shout out uh, yeah. for you know modern day uh, uh, modern day women of color in uh, STEM? I think my biggest shout out, and she's pretty popular and pretty famous, Kimberly Bryant. For those who haven't known her, um, she founded the Black Girls Code Club. Um, which is just a basic training co- uh, training course that teaches basic programming concepts to black girls underrepresented. Um, I personally participated in that club, and it's a really well thought out, well built club. has great materials. I think the materials are relevant for women today um, to get them interested, and I think that in particular is very important. Um, so I definitely want to give her a lot of credit. I think she definitely showed and demonstrated that you can in this modern age can be a black woman and be a developer at the same time. And the fact that she's evangelizing and trying to bring other people in is just amazing to me. So I definitely want to give her uh, a lot of, uh, you know, kudos for starting that. Awesome. And what was her name again? Kimberly Bryant. Kimberly Bryant. Cool. That's awesome. No, I, I had not heard of her. That's good to know. Yeah. Um, all right, so I, I read through a few different articles on pay gap and pay difference, um, and this is like by no means a comprehensive study or like an academic um, research um, that I did, but um, just looking through the different articles, I found two that were really interesting. Um, and so the one was an article that was, um, it was reviewed by Quartz. Quartz did the write-up on it. Um, and so it was a 2016 study that they reviewed and they found that, um, black candidates were offered $2,000 more than their salary preference stated on their profile. So it's like, oh, that's good news. Um, but then it dug into the reasons why, um, the, the main reason why was because their salary ask or like what they were being expected to be paid was significantly lower um, than their their white and non-minority counterparts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and race and going to gender as well, right? Mm-hmm. Do the same thing. Yep, yep. Um, and so, so ultimately, that study, the the study showed that whites received the highest annual compensation, um, and then it was followed by um, a few other different minority groups. But the, the big takeaway from that was, I think, don't be don't be afraid to uh, like ask for for what you believe you're worth. Yeah, and definitely like <laughs> use 
resources like Glassdoor or mm-hmm. things like that to just know what the actual average is. Don't like undersell yourself. Yeah. That's I just remember- good general advice, I think, for everybody. <laughs> yeah. I remember when I, um, so I come from like a not well off background and I remember that my, like one of my first interviews as a software developer, um, they were, they asked me like what I expected my salary to be. And like, I was like, oh, it's my first year. Um, so I was like, I don't know, like 20,000. And they, they honestly like laughed me off of the phone. They were like, we'll call you back next week. So yeah, just like doing that doing the research is really important. Just everybody like know what you're worth um as software developers we're, we're essentially magicians so let's like really stand up for yourself i was going to say i think there's two sides to the undervaluation element of the pay gap so it's african-americans women who undervalue themselves but it's also on the flip side as well i think it's companies who also undervalue mm-hmm. african-american women as well they might not explicitly say it but they implicitly make in what they perceive as a risk uh, when they work through the salaries that they initially give. Yeah. So I think the get, the pay gap, right? I guess when you think about people's salaries, there's the initial salary you get, and then, then there's the raises you get as you matriculate through the corporation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Promotions and whatnot. So I think it's kind of a three-pronged issue, right? So I think there's undervaluation by the African-American community and women specifically, I think there's undervaluation by the people who are hiring. And I think there's also a corporate culture, broadly speaking, from, macro, from a macroeconomic perspective, that doesn't necessarily lend itself to African-Americans, women succeeding in corporate culture um, and being set up for success, as well as uh, our white counterparts. Yeah, yeah, so, definitely. I think, yeah, you know, and that's a harder issue to solve, right? Um, The culture element of it, the culture element itself, you know, the the chummy bro culture, right? Like the, uh, you know, we went to the same college together, you know, we, you know, like there's even people who don't go to the same college, there's like this uh, tacit camaraderie that I think exists that is hard to, to navigate, right? It's like, even though you guys are both, one of you guys is from Minnesota, the other guy's from Texas, you're both white guys, and you feel like your comfort, your, your comfort levels with each other are hard to penetrate. Mm-hmm. And it creates a, a faux barrier for people that don't look like you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is really unfortunate um, because I feel like software is one of those like hard sciences that like you're either you either know what you're doing or, or you don't. And it's like the the fact that it can be a question of, of bias is just like really disheartening. Like, Well, I think it gets more complicated actually if you like want to dig down into the educational elements of it as well. Just like from a, you know, I'm, it's exciting to see, you know, Black Girls Code exists today and like institutions and organizations trying to step up to empower under represented minority groups to be able to do the things that you know we do today but just on a broader on a broader basis right the schools that black people go to just have a lot less money than the schools that black people go to a lot of that's rooted in property tax law right that the, the pure fact that 
districts with the most property taxes get the most funding for their schools, right? Yeah. I feel like mm -hmm. you would see a lot more, you see a higher number of African-American or just even you know, people on the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder do better if say all property tax funds were equally distributed across all schools across you know a particular state you know if that educational socioeconomic experiment took place i think you'd see a drastic shift mm -hmm. in what happens so i think what ends up happening is because people who are of color or poor have poor educations they still go to college but then what happens is they don't succeed in the way that people with earlier education succeed mm -hmm. right when i joined i went to lehigh I joined their computer science and business program and there was like, I was one of five black people who was in the program. Right. And then by the time I graduated, I was just the only one left. And I just, I was actually the first African American to graduate from the CSB program at Lehigh. And the reason that they dropped out is just because they didn't have the preparation and they couldn't keep pace with the people who did have the preparation. Yeah. Um, and, I did have preparation. I went to college prep school. My parents, I, I was uh, very fortunate growing up. You know, I definitely grew up on the on the bright side of the track, um, if you want to. Not sure how you want to put it, but you know, my parents both went to college. My mother was a hidden figures type. She like got her master's in mathematics and worked at Boeing, and she works at aerospace now, and yeah, does really cool things. So she knew that education was extremely important and. The public school I, I was districted to go to in my neighborhood was actually Crenshaw High. My actually my senior year of high school, Crenshaw lost its accreditation. So you can think about that. You heard of mm -hmm. colleges losing their accreditation, but high schools losing their accreditation is crazy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know? And so my mom knew she didn't want me to go to that school. So she figured out a way for me to get into the California private school systems. Um and you know, put put up money. I got it was like a I think I got like a whatever scholarship it was. My parents put up like 10K a year mm -hmm. and the rest of it was covered by um, financial aid from my high school. Um, but I got really good education and then because of that, I was able to keep pace yeah. you know, with people in college. And I was able to graduate with the computer science engineering degree. Do you, so Kofi, in, in addition to that like preparation and background, um, do you think any of it is how how you're treated like by either your classmates or your coworkers. So do you mean like um like how I interact with people? Yeah, just like the, the fact that, you know, it the major for you in, in your in your school had such a high dropout rate for, for black students. Mm -hmm. um, is any part of that just related to like discrimination by the teachers or discrimination like by classmates? I think it was when we look at issues I just like just Generally speaking, I don't like to look at one cause or yeah. issue and say like, that's the only reason, right? Uh, I think that's probably part of it. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that the, you know, I think the teachers that we have were great, to be honest. Uh, I think they did a pretty good job of trying to include people. Like uh, my professors encouraged me to keep going even when I was struggling. Uh, I think the one thing that I noticed is that, you know, the study groups, like they weren't interested, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times they weren't interested in having me in the study groups. So I, that was kind of hard. So I think it was more from a, a peer perspective than it was an institutional perspective that made things difficult. And, uh, you know, 
and it was a lot of it too was because a lot of the kids in the computer science classes they had previous experience in computer science so they it wasn't just that <clears throat> i was the only black kid it was that i also didn't know as much as they did to be quite honest right mm-hmm. like they wanted to say with people who like were smarter than they were right? i think that's kind of like a, a broader issue across colleges in general everyone one wants to stay with someone who they think can pull them up, not someone that they think is dragging them down. Yeah. Um, and so trying to find people to work with, to work through some of these challenging stuff, I think was uh, made things difficult. Um, but, you know, there's resources out there. Like Lehigh had really good tutor programs that were for free. That, you know, they, you could go and the Lehigh would front the cost of a $15 an hour tutor for whoever wanted it which was really awesome. So I got a tutor and he was really, really helpful to me. Nice. And like, I was able to work through a lot of my classes. So, you know, uh, bad things exist that, you know, make things difficult, but good things exist too. That's a good uh, point about um, what you took in high school. Like, did you guys take any programming classes in high school? I took one and yeah. it was a terrible class. Like I didn't, I didn't do well. I couldn't type fast at that point. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I I took uh I remember I took um like web web design. I was using Microsoft mm-hmm. page back in like eighth grade and I like loved that class. That was easy. That was mm-hmm. you know, drag and drop and create the components and then you could go in and tweak with the stuff in the back end if you really wanted to. Mm-hmm. But I took a C plus plus class and was like I wasn't prepared for the uh the shift. I think, you know, I went I was going into class thinking it was like no front page again, but mm-hmm was like no it's c plus plus yeah right i think the teacher really did a good job you know painting the picture he's like read this book and then write these c plus plus classes and i was like i don't even know what you're talking about yeah (laughs) right (laughs) um yeah i was just wondering at my high school we had you know programming classes you know freshman to senior so we learned pascal and then we learned c plus plus and then some like web development stuff at the end and we had a programming club even so you could like uh in the middle of the day where that would be people's like flex time if you wanted to you could just go to programming club and just Mm -hmm. hack away at shit you know make games we were trying to make like a galaga game uh based in pascal we were learning like all the fringe pascal Mm -hmm. you know way to draw graphics and stuff to make this happen um so yeah it's definitely i never thought twice about that you know i was just like oh that was what we did in high school you know so yeah that's right. really enlightening you know thanks for making <laughs> me realize that <laughs> no problem no problem i mean i think hopefully you kind of just wrapped up my college experience in like in a nutshell where like <laughs> answering the question regarding like programming classes like honestly like in high school i was a jock i didn't really know what i really wanted to do so crystal like here you're your experience kind of mm-hmm. juxtaposed to mine where your lunch period was actually working towards like your career now versus mm-hmm. mine was just like making fun of my friends during lunch you know? cause it <laughs> right. was that level of exposure. I think I never really took any uh, software development classes in high school. There were like one or two, but I mean, they really weren't all that. And it was kind of like the hangout class as opposed to really the real class. So that exposure really didn't start till later on. Um, my dad worked as a database administrator, so he's always been in IT. He's always been some kind of level of development. Um, so my real first exposure was him. Uh, it was a summer. I had nothing to do, and he looked at me and saw that I had nothing to do. 
So he just took a, a book of SQL and just slammed it on my table and said, like, hey, you're going to learn SQL. Um, How old were you? So, I think it was like 15 or 16. And he was like, all right, you need to learn SQL. You need to start like start learning Unix, start learning Unix commands, like learn mm -hmm. what is CD, LS, all that stuff, the commands like for the Unix terminal. Uh, terminal. So that was really my first exposure was, hey, you're looking at a computer all day every day doing god knows what why don't you actually like look actually behind the scenes and how this computer works understand like what an operating system is so i really started from it was a very lower level like i definitely started late like when i started computer science at maryland university of maryland college park uh, i started my like software year because honestly i just wanted to do something with business i think i like was like yeah i want to be an entrepreneur and da 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 da, -da. And didn't really have an idea of like really what that meant and what that entailed. And I kind of found, found myself kind of floundering, uh, definitely my like end of freshman year, beginning of like sophomore year, I was like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing here. And my dad was like, hey, like, remember, you know, a couple of years ago, we put that Unix book in front of you. Um, I think maybe it's time you should really look into computer science as a like potential career. And at first I was like, oh man, I don't want to do what you're doing. I don't want to do what you're doing. I heard this man on the phone for years, like, hoop line and yelling about this database is down and this script is busted and we have an overnight deployment and I was like, ah, oh, that doesn't sound great. But I think what really changed for me was to see that computer science, software engineering, software development is really just building a canvas. Mm -hmm. Your ideas are really the paint and you can kind of paint with whatever your ideas are. Yeah. As long as you have a web app, you can do anything with that web app. It can be a business app. You can make a social media app. You can make a gaming app. It just depends on what the idea is. But having the idea, the concept of what software engineering is kind of allows you to get those ideas from your head and then put them out into the universe. Mm -hmm. I think my experience in college was somewhat similar to yours, Kofi, where I walked into my Java 100 class and there was about 70 people. And I would say... I mean, I'm not going to get into the obvious the break the number breakdown minutia, but it was predominantly white. Uh, there were definitely a couple Asians and a couple Hispanics. Yeah, so there were other people of color, but for as far as African Americans, like there was like five. And getting to the end was definitely hard because you would see people fall by the wayside, and I definitely was definitely close to falling off by the wayside a number of times. So I was because again, going back to Chris's point, like it's hard to compete with someone who's already spent their formative years in high school programming. So yeah. you already got the game. Your mind has already made that paradigm shifting into development. You understand mm -hmm. how a for a loop works. You understand this stuff. But then coming, in my experience, coming day one, it's like, all right, this is a class. Mm -hmm. It's like, ah, this is a class. This is a variable. This is this and this is that. Mm -hmm. It's kind of kind of representative of the black experience in America, right? Like this education was already there. Like you guys have already had a head start. And so we're just kind of playing catch up now. And so that was really what I was feeling the whole time. And I think what kind of helped me get through it was like finding a tribe. Uh, there was like, you know, I had two of my buddies, they were uh, black as well. And we really kind of helped us through the process, even if we were pulling each other down, mm -hmm. there are some times that I would get pulled down by someone else. But I was like, hey, man, this is how it works. Here's the study. And there's yeah. another time where I was dragging the group down. But I think us all working together in a non-cheating environment, we obviously did our own work. But 
mm-hmm. helping us through it. It was probably one of the only reasons why I was able to get through it was because having that tribe, because I think sometimes there is a cultural difference too. And I think sometimes like, and I, I'm not trying to put this as bluntly or as like blame as possible, but sometimes like in those computer science spheres, it's really hard to like break into it because as a black person, computer science tends to be very white dominated. Mm-hmm. It's like kind of a cultural thing too. So sometimes I don't know how to talk to them. They don't know how to talk to me. And as a, as a result, we kind of stay apart mm-hmm. and I've just got my corner over here. Y'all got y'all space. And I think that's what we came. It was very standoffish. It wasn't any, any animus or anything, but it was just one of those kind of circumstances where we just didn't, like, the cultures didn't blend. Yeah. Or so, like, divide. Yeah, it, it was it was kind of weird. It was, again, never no animus. There was never any racial untowardness, but it was just, it, it was something that just was missing, and there was a communication that was just missing. But after getting through that and, like, kind of getting into, like, uh, this is my last point before I jump off, but just the overall knowing your worth. I think knowing your worth comes from two ways. Again, it's self-worth, but it's also, like, this institutional basis of that, like, black people make less money because they are less than or viewed as less than. And that might even be explicit. I think it's this implicit bias. I think this is this kind of been cooked in to the fabric of our country where it's just like john you said like it seems like they get paid more than what they ask but if you're mm-hmm. already twenty thousand less what is twenty two thousand more you're still eighteen thousand less but mm-hmm. that two thousand more make you feel a little bit better about like oh wow i got look. because you not only do you value yourself less the country values yourself less so if they throw you a little extra you're like wow you know i feel really good about it so yeah. it's one of those things where i like the idea of knowing your value and being able to shop yourself out to different places and say like, this is the skills I got. I can give it to you. I know my stuff. What do you think I'm worth? Cause I know what I'm worth. And so a lot of the times when, if I'm doing any interviews or hearing from any recruiters, they always ask me like, uh, what is your asking salary? Like how much do you want? I was like, well, I'm going to tell you what my skills are and you're going to tell me what you think of me. And if that number's not right, then there's no point in talking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that's a way I've tried to use to like kind of take some semblance of power uh, back from the overall negotiating process. Because to me, that's the scariest part is figuring out your value. So yeah. mm-hmm. one of the I think one of the hardest things with that is that it's a, a lot easier to say that when you are currently employed than if you're not employed. And you know we know that um, like there are not as many uh, black software developers, so just like having the power to say that is another thing that's, you know, falls under that white privilege category. And I think that's something that it took some time for me to build up. Cause I remember my first job, I was just happy to get a job. Like, to be <laughs> honest with you, I was like, all right, like they did these mass interviews and I made it through a number of the interviewing steps and processes. I survived my first whiteboarding experience, which to this day still gives me PTSD. Um, but yeah, you're right. In that first initial, I was just happy to get through the door, mm-hmm. but that mindset shouldn't be the mindset you always have to have. Mm-hmm. There's a difference for, between being grateful and being subservient. Like I'm grateful to be in the position I am right now, 
but I shouldn't just have my hand and like my hat in my hand and like, oh, thank you, sir. Like, thank you for giving me this. It shouldn't mm-hmm. be that. It shouldn't. It shouldn't be it shouldn't. all you are is grateful. There should be some sort of symbiotic understanding between the two. This is a mutual, mutually beneficial relationship between employer and employee. Exactly. The symbiotic. I, I'm. We're working together. I'm providing you a service. You're providing me with money, and we're working together to make a, a solid product. Mm-hmm. But it, I think the last is like, oh, I'm just happy to be here. Like that wasn't the feeling that I always wanted to care. Like, oh, I'm happy to be here. It's, uh, I'm while I'm happy to be here, you should be happy I'm here as well. Mm-hmm. And you, you, we should both appreciate the opportunity that we're both giving each other. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's the shift that I went from my first job to like kind of now is where it's like, I thank you for giving me this opportunity, but just know that. I'm watching you as well, watching mm-hmm. me, watching you, kind of that thing where we're we're in this together. This is yeah. not you're 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 kind of keeping me. You're we're, we're working together on this. So, mm-hmm. yeah. what do you guys think of like? Um, so you know, in government jobs, they put you in these grades, uh, and then everybody knows what the salary range is for any particular grade. Whereas mm-hmm. in private companies, it's like hush hush, you know, no one's allowed to know each other's salaries what what would you think of a company that instead ran it more like the government that everybody's salary was public information basically and so then you couldn't really mess around with underpaying uh by race or by gender you know um it's an interesting thought experiment uh i think that you know everything was publicized i think there'd be some I don't, I'm, not, I'm trying to think about who would benefit and who wouldn't benefit in this situation. It's kind of hard to think off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, I think that if, you know, my, I'm trying to think about like, you know, I, I'm at Deloitte now, right? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, uh, everyone's salaries are public mm-hmm. uh, to everyone in Deloitte. Like, how would that cause chaos or would it cause? Right, yeah. Right. This, I'm just thinking about it from like a, you know, uh, an operational standpoint. I think it's easier for the government to do it because the range of salaries in government mm-hmm. is, is so small, right? Like no one's really making more than like, you know, $200,000 in the government, but mm-hmm. in private sector, you know, the range can be from the janitor to the CEO. Right. And so seeing as a company, right? Like I think that company leaders might see that excessively wide gap mm-hmm agita and heartache you know mm-hmm. so <laughs> i think maybe that's a good thing no i'm just kidding. yeah yeah that's what yeah yeah you know that's, so i i think it could be interesting mm-hmm. um you know to see what everyone else is making i think that it could also you know even at the lower levels i think there's more um variety in salaries i think that mm-hmm. it could cause rife between employees because i think the other thing too that you see in government is more structure right Mm -hmm. like you are everyone you report to this person Mm -hmm. and these people are your peers right Mm -hmm. and then at the peer level the government you know everyone at this peer level is making around this much Mm -hmm. Um, but in private sector i think there's a lot more variety in salary right so you might Mm -hmm. find out that the person you're working next to who you're good friends with is like you know making five thousand dollars less than you and then that (laughs) then what does that do to your relationship with that person that you have? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I would say that it 
would have been interesting for companies. I think companies who were starting up, mm-hmm. go for it. But for companies who already exist, it's going to be hard to go backwards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially considering the all the different things that go into compensation outside of just salary. You have to think about like stock, equity, you know, all right. that kind of stuff as well. Mm-hmm. So, okay. What, what about, what do you think, like if an established company were to implement a policy, like as a new employee, your salary will be made public. Mm-hmm. What, would that be helpful? Well, then you're giving the new employees a disadvantage to the existing employees, right? I think it has to be everyone or no one. Yeah. Um, so I, I would be, you know, if Deloitte wanted to say, we're going to publicize everybody's salaries, you know, who isn't a partner, I guess, because partners is complicated, right? They don't really have salaries. They have shares in the company mm-hmm. those pay out certain amounts of money. Um, but yeah, if, uh, you know, people want, they wanted to create like a rubric and say like, here's what everybody makes, then I, I think it might be more beneficial to do what the girl did at Google to just kind of mm-hmm. publicize it by uh, race and gender characteristics as opposed to individual, right? And just yeah, like, right. That's a, that's a good point. It doesn't have to be identifying, but it can still be. Right. You can still incorporate demographic characteristics into how you assess the, mm-hmm. the pay gaps. Right? Yeah, and I, just to chime in, I think, to me, I think that is the step that, like, this country should go, is to expose those numbers, not people, but demographics and numbers, but mm-hmm. in a way, like, I feel like companies don't want to deal with that, because that's like a, Pandora, mm-hmm. like a Pandora's box of yeah. just racial, socioeconomic turmoil, because I think a lot of companies like to think, for lack of a better term, that, you know, their stuff doesn't stink, mm-hmm. that they're better than, and, you know, they... They champion diversity as much as any other company, but in reality, they're not. They're just kind of saying the words but not backing up the actions. Mm-hmm. And so I think to come out with a document that states, hey, by race, by gender, by age, um, by experience, mm-hmm. these are how we are paying our employees. I think what they'll learn is that the, the stats and statistics that they see out in the world have probably mirrored what's going on in their companies. And I don't think they want to deal with that. And so mm-hmm. while I think it's a step forward, a step forward in progress, they, it's basically like, you know, looking to your closet, right? You've been mm-hmm. cleaning your room for years by just throwing stuff in that closet. That closet's a mess like in a cartoon. You know, you open that door, a mm-hmm. bunch of stuff in a bowling ball comes out <laughs> and hits you in the head. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what these companies are going to see is that they've implicitly, because of the evaluations that we have had for African-Americans in, the com- in, in this country, mm-hmm. that they are paying them less than based on experience, age, gender, race, that they'll realize, oh, wow, we've been doing it too. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have to fix it because once you realize there's a problem, they're going to have to fix it because mm-hmm. there's nothing worse than recognizing a problem but then not actually fixing it and just mm-hmm. letting it be the status quo. So mm-hmm. I just want to address the the fixing element, right? So I think to fix it doesn't mean you have to fix it in a day, mm-hmm. right? I think that to address race and gender pay gaps is not something that's going to be solved by one vote or one year's worth of policy changes, right? I think that's going to take potentially our lifetimes, right, to try and really 
get things caught up to where they, you know, where things are, you know, are more equal. Mm-hmm. This is a, this is like a long, a problem that requires continual assessment and to be addressed and to be worked on by um, people in our society in order to keep moving the, the needle forward, right? And making sure that it doesn't go backward. Yeah. So I think publicizing that kind of information would be good to make sure, you know, we don't need to like blow up everything today, but we need to make sure that we're at least moving forward, you know, yeah. over a year. So Matt, I want to go back to something you said um, that was um, something about like once they, once they realize it's a problem, um, do you think the the head of the of different companies and like the the leaders in the HR departments, do you think they they realize there's a pay gap issue, or do you think they're they're mostly unaware and kind of ignorant? Yeah, I think ignorance. You can have you can. There's two different types of ignorance. There is like willful willful right. ignorance, and yeah, just, they they know that you know, like it's just, they just don't know, or they like they know but they just don't act like they don't see right. it. You know, I think mm. um, I think those are like the two types of ignorance. And I mean, the more I kind of talk about it, the more, Christopher, your idea makes sense with how the government is doing it. Just mm-hmm. create a metric. Like if you have five years of experience, this is you. Mm-hmm. And, and, and but the thing is, you have to hold yourself to it. These HR right. departments have to understand this is the guidelines that we have set. And no matter who it is, if they fall under this line, they all have to start off the same. Now, I would say bonuses and other metrics of benefits and stuff like that. Again, it's, there's no easy solution. Like Kofi, you said, like I, when I say the word fix it, I'm not, I don't have a magic wand. say, boop, like we're all equal, <laughs> all the same, but there has to be a starting point. And mm-hmm. I think that standard pay rate is a good starting place. But when you get into bonuses and then merit raises, mm-hmm. eh, that is a whole nother world because mm-hmm. what is merit? What is, how do you compare someone else's work to someone else? Like, how do you compare work? Mm-hmm. And I think that in that instance, again, starts allow a little bit more bias and allows mm-hmm. a little bit more um, minutia to be involved in, in these raises where you might not like how this person operates mm-hmm. for some reason, maybe they're mean or, something i don't know maybe they are being known as the angry black man but in reality they're not so you might value someone else's work who you can get along with a little bit better mm-hmm. versus that person so i think we should be aware of it hr departments should definitely be aware of it if they don't know they should pull up numbers i think there should be some kind of initiative to pull up the numbers like run the numbers see how people are being paid see who's getting the merit increases because you'll know where merit increases come from as well. Like Mm -hmm. this person got a 2%, this person got 5%, that person got 10%. Mm -hmm. Why did they get it? So what work did they do such that they deserve that level of raise? Mm -hmm. And what are the surrounding kind of not characteristics, but like what are the factors that involved in that? Mm -hmm. And see if those bias are being in play there somehow, some way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like, it's interesting because it's definitely... So when, like, if you were to do a statistical analysis on this, you can always ask, like, okay, like, what percentage of this difference is accounted for by, you know, maybe it's age, maybe it's years of experience, those sort of things. So those, like, make sense. Let's factor those out. For the things that we know we're, we're 
not not age i'm sorry but like years of experience mm-hmm. factor that out like that there should be a difference there mm-hmm. but then then once you factor out all of those other variables then you can be like oh like shit like actually like age is an influencing factor or like mm-hmm. race is an influencing factor and like here's how much of an influencing factor and if you see those numbers and and you have a big like negative unexplained um difference then then yeah like you need to fix that and i think at the end of the day not everyone's going to get paid the same that would be honestly the pie in the sky we all make the same amount at the end of the day based on whatever our role is Mm -hmm. but not everyone's the same some are better than others some people can get stuff done better than others some Mm -hmm. people can write programming some people can code better than others and that's just a part of the game but what shouldn't be a part of the game is that base salary being affected by those factors. Yeah. Someone, you know, it's like sports, right? If someone is a better, sh- like, is a better shooter, of course they're going to make money. They're a better shooter. But if they both are shooting, you know, 33% from the line, mm-hmm. then they should obviously be on the same standing. So I think that's where it really comes down to is just that initial evaluation of value pay them the same and if one person plays better than the other so be it but at least they did it on the basis of their merit not on the basis of their skin talking about the three-point line right yeah <laughs> i'm not gonna get into fired. sports analogies or anything like, <laughs> this guy scores the touchdown better, you know? <laughs> yeah i agree i think it's you know um it's a it's interesting to try and incorporate race and gender into like uh talent evaluation right for a prior year um should it even be incorporated into a talent evaluation on i i don't have the answer to that question i'm not going to say one way or the other if i think it should be or not i guess if we're thinking about like actually you know what i'm going to go ahead and say that i think it probably in a vacuum it shouldn't right like we should be able to live in a world where we can evaluate people's uh performance and the way that they've done things mm-hmm. without uh, having the implicit backdrop of, you know, I guess implicit bias factor into our evaluations, but we don't live in a world where implicit bias doesn't exist. So either we counter, we try and counteract implicit bias that does exist mm-hmm. or, uh, no, there's no, there's no other or option. Like we have to, just, you just have to, you just have to work to. You have to, you have to incorporate that in. So mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know that race, you know, specific race and gender needs to be like a line item on like a time evaluation. But I think that implicit bias should be right. Like just take that into consideration. That mm-hmm. think about the things that you're not thinking about that you feelings you might harbor that don't necessarily bubble up to the surface in words, but they might trickle down in the, what you write down on your, with your pen, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, I, I, with the base salaries, right. I think the other thing I wanted to mention too, with the, the, you know, the government pay scale, I think others might argue that the government pay scale is a large contributor to the, the stagnancy, the bureaucracy mm. of the government as well. Right. The fact that no one's really <clears throat> motivated to work harder than they have to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that would probably, you would probably have similar, you would see similar, um, results if that was, um, done in the private sector as well. Mm-hmm. And is that because, uh, 
basically it's all based on years of experience getting up through the grades. I, I so this being there's promotions as well, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you work harder, you can get promoted faster. Right? Mm-hmm. I think that's really the way up in the government. It, but from like a bonus perspective, no one's really getting bonuses in the government. Right, right, right. Uh, I see. Yeah, makes sense. So, but you have to work hard to get move up a little in the government. Mm-hmm. So the the motivation element certainly isn't there on a yearly basis, right? Like long term basis, sure, you know, that, that's there. But I don't mm-hmm. think you'll be there for someone's like, you know, um, you know, I'm gonna really push forth this year because I really need that bonus to help mm-hmm. pay for my down payment on my house, right? You know, right. really see that. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so I think that you know, with the pay with this with the salaries, I think if companies want to publicize like this is our salaries for computer science to majors or whatever they're hiring right out of college i think mm-hmm. that's probably good right so at least we're all starting from the same baseline mm-hmm. and then how we progress from there how that is addressed is a little more complicated i think that's what i was talking about before with the implicit bias stuff and mm-hmm. bring that into our account evaluations yeah. um, but at least we can if we can all at least start from the same starting line mm-hmm. right we might have a better chance of running a fair race yeah i like that i like the <laughs> um <laughs> yeah i like the idea of like this is what we pay out of college yeah. yeah and then everyone's starting from that same starting point and then it's on them to on their merits hopefully <laughs> hopefully yeah i know right <laughs> Getting, uh, <laughs> right are there any are there any like kind of final thoughts or just like overall sentiments? Uh, I would just say get kids involved in STEM, get mm-hmm. young African-American kids into STEM, get people of color into STEM. I said earlier, I think, and I say this to a lot of students, I try to do public engagement speakings in high schools if possible. Um, I've done it for the last couple of years with like Ron Brown in DC and mm. um, McKinley Tech as well. And the thing I say to them is that computers aren't going anywhere anytime soon. If anything, computers are going to be a more part of your existence from the cell phones that are in your hand to the data that's collected about you to your online presence. Like computers will always be around forever and for more. And it is imperative that you become at minimum computer literate. You don't have to be a programmer, but you have to understand what a computer is, what it does, yeah. and some of the, the technical details about a computer. And another, in addition, is it is a strong, solid career. Mm-hmm. It is one of the careers where if you work hard enough, you don't even really need a to- college degree. I think if I had a time machine, I'm not saying that I wouldn't go to school for computer science because there is definitely some mathematics and there is a foundational understanding of like algorithms and and machine uh machine code that you have to understand in order to understand the higher ups but if you honestly go to Mm freecodecamp.com if you look at the bevy of resources out there you can become a software developer with some time and energy and it's one of these it's one of the industries where it's truly a level playing field as long as you have an internet connection and you have the will to learn, you will learn it. Yeah. And I always say the money's great. And that money will help you and future generations to like really build something. And I think that's kind of I'm step two. My dad, 
came from um, Nine Brothers and Sisters, um, mm -hmm. New Orleans, Lower, uh, Lower Ninth Ward in New Orleans. Uh, they, they weren't like critically poor, but they w didn't have much. My dad worked really hard, went to the University of Tulsa, became an electrical engineer, became a software developer, and then had a son. And then he pushed his son into software development. Now his son is like in the middle of DC living a great life. And the next step in the plan is to have my child and then hopefully educate that child into STEM, into software development in order to keep this going. I think to me, wealth. yeah, building a generational wealth. And I think it starts from people like me, people like you, Kofi, saying, We've seen the young generation. I think I don't know what the quote is. It's a Booker T. Washington quote. Uh, Booker T. Washington quote where it's cast down your pail, like you can't pail of water and pick up the like and pick them up. Like there's so many young African American kids that just don't know what they want to do, what they want to be. Kind of like me when I was in high school. But if you can expose people at a young age, like Chris, like you were exposed, mm -hmm. by the time they're in college. They won't have experiences like Kofi or myself where we feel like we're behind. We feel less than. They mm -hmm. already know what's going on. They'll already know what those four loops are. They already know all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just important. We have to expose people at a younger age. That's why I wanted to shout out Kimberly Bryant specifically for Black Girls Who Code. Because especially Black women, they are the least represented in STEM education where there's like maybe one or two at most in a particular program. Mm -hmm. So education not only of, of yourself, but of others is mm -hmm. so crucial. And I literally live, that is the one form of protest that I can really serve on a day-to-day -day basis is at the end of the day, education won't serve you. You're still a black person no matter what. But if you're educated and you know something about something and you talk like you know something about something and you have that money to kind of at least protect yourself a little bit, mm -hmm. um, hopefully, you know, you'll be off better off in the long run. Yeah, those are really good words. Um, I think I kind of just end things with the, you know, stat, you know, America is 13% black. So we're always going to be the minority, right? No matter what, like if we were accurately reflected in uh, the computer science world today, you know, there would still be, you know, only 10 black people for every 50 developers, right? I think what we want to do is up the number from two to 10. I think, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think there's still like a long way to go. <clears throat> we can get that higher and, you know, do a try and encourage, uh, like Matt was saying, encourage the next generation to really take a step towards this field earlier on, right? I think it should be a part of the public school curriculum. Right? Mm -hmm. I think, that, you know, somewhere like the language requirement, art requirement, there should be a, computer science department as well, and a, a history of computer science as well. Right? I think that's really important too, just because I think as we advance, the technological gap is widening between what we, where we are today and how we've gotten to where we are today, right? Like some of those core concepts, right? It's important to, to, for future generations to know the path to how we've gotten to where we are today. Yeah. Um, I think Additionally, you know, um, just making sure that it's not just Matt and I encouraging um, black youth to get out and 
follow this, you know, fruitful path, but also John and Chris as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's is uh, I think this is something that we can all contribute toward, or all, yeah, we can all act to try and, you know, shift things in a, in a way that you know is more reflective of the society that we actually live in. I think also you know having conversations like this. I think this is really good. Thanks for organizing this um, you know it's been enlightening for me as well so i think you know this is a, you know, a symbiotic conversation um but yeah i think that we just all need to kind of you know in lockstep try and uh, push forward to try and uh like i was saying before make sure that we're continuing to push forward keeping our eye on the needle and making sure that we're not slipping and going backwards you mm-hmm. know we're not solve it tomorrow but we can at least make sure we're moving in the right direction mm-hmm. I think um, the, I forget what exactly what this guy's name is, the artist that's been kind of like running around doing weird random things. Ban- Bansky? I think oh, Bansky? What's it? What is it? Bansky? Bansky? Yeah. Um, he put out a quote yesterday, I think, uh, basically saying like that white people have been silent about black people's issues and whether or not because they're ignorant or because they just feel like they shouldn't be, you know, speaking on behalf of black people, right? Like black people need to have that voice. And so, but basically he said that this isn't just a black problem. Like it's a white problem too, that white people have these biases and that they need to step up and start voicing um, and contributing to the solution of raising people up. And I just thought that was, yeah, powerful. Yeah. Absolutely. I would take it another step and say this was never a black problem to begin with. Mm-hmm. Like for the last 400 years, this has never been a black problem. Like we we haven't enslaved ourselves. We haven't redlined ourselves. We haven't created Jim Crow for ourselves. Sure, yeah. We didn't, you know, so I think it's always been something that it's a problem. It's not It's not even a problem. It's just, it's always been the circumstances. It's like the mm-hmm. fubu of racism. It's for white people by white people. Right. So it's one of those things that, the black community is solving it, trying to fix it. But like at the end of the day, the true fix is going to come from white people, like where they understand like supremacy, mm-hmm. brutality, and privilege. <clears throat> These are the things that you have to speak on every day. Mm-hmm. And without it, while we are trying to, you know, while we're trying to do better, that's never going to change a situation where uh, a, a white cop sees a black person, no matter if they look like me, they look mm-hmm. like Kofi. We, if we change, put on a hoodie and I talk differently. It doesn't matter if I make six figures or it doesn't matter if I have 26 patents. At the end of the day, you're still black. Right. I think that's the solution that needs, that's the change that needs to be done on the white side where they understand what's going on in that bias that's in their head. And once they recognize it, Mm -hmm. I think that's the first step. And I think, I think this week, I think this week in particular has been that collect, like collective unconscious awakening. Not of the whole like, country, because there's still people who are just going to be there and maybe never change. Hopefully they make. But like, I think people who are just not willfully ignorant, but they just never spoke up. They never felt comfortable speaking up. I think they mm-hmm. realized like, OK, like the change I want to see begins in me. Right. So I think people are really speaking up in particular. And I think that Banksy quote really kind of reflects that. Like, we need to say stuff, too, because silence is complicity. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I don't know that he used the word problem. I probably butchered it 
He probably said it more eloquently than I did. <laughs> I mean, it's a problem. It's a problem. I mean, yeah. regardless, it's a problem. Um, it's always been. So um, mm-hmm. I use the word. There's a fluffle or shenanigans. There's a bunch of words you can use. <laughs> right. It's a bunch of bullshit, regardless. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> cool. So the, the last thing that I wanted to say is that um, uh, we'll have an upcoming episode um, at some point. I don't know if it'll be the next one, but um, at some point we'll have one on the the ethics of AI, um, especially we'll be talking on issues concerning like training, training sets um, that may be biased, then we need to, we need to make sure we're not introducing bias into the, into those algorithms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that should be the next episode. Cause you told me the episode before this one was about machine learning. Yeah. And so if this episode's about the racial experience in software engineering, I think it has to like that. It's almost like the like Empire Strikes Back, or was it the I don't know Star Wars? You can tell, but it's like that last of the trilogy. It was like mm-hmm. we have machine learning, we have this racial bias within our country. Mm-hmm. If we create these AI programs that already have racially biased data, will the AI become racially biased? Right. I think that is like yeah, it has to that that's I think that's the next step. And I read a couple articles about that, and that's just as alarming as well. Like, how do you remove the racial and bias from data that's being collected because the data was skewed because of the racism right not the rate like the racism yeah. is in the data because the country has racism the reason yeah. why mm-hmm. more black people are likely to be in prison is because or that data shows that is because of yep. systemic racism so yep. mm-hmm. it's one of those things where it's not even the chicken and the egg it's like the egg is the chicken. It's the same thing all at one time. So I think mm-hmm. that should definitely be the next one. All right. People have spoken, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. As a fan, as a fan of the podcast, <laughs> as an official fan, I'll be the second follower if you make that the next episode. All right. Please Sounds good. <laughs> we got to grow the grow our audience. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we'll, we'll, Chris, we'll double the audience in one week. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you guys hear about... Um, just to speak to that a little bit, uh, Microsoft's like AI that posted on Twitter, uh, and she would like basically read, she would read other tweets and then tweet out her own interesting tweets. And I think like within 24 hours, she basically turned into like a Nazi yeah. and she would just like post yeah. super racist supremacist they had shit. To bring it down, like, yeah, they turned it down. pretty much right after. Yeah. That. Yeah, I thought four. I thought four chan got to her, and that's why. Oh, like four okay. chan, or like maybe B or Pole or something, whatever the Trolls. asshole of the internet. Yeah, is. yeah. <laughs> like they just kept tweeting at her. Oh, like, but yeah, I'm I'm not surprised. I think one of the things that is, and this is probably the thing that will never change, but an, uh, internet anonymity mm-hmm. is probably one of the most dangerous things in the world. Because yeah. you literally can say whatever you want behind the veil of some kind of egg on Twitter mm-hmm. or just creating, you know, Skeet Master 95. And that gives you the right to say whatever you want to someone yeah. to the point where it's downright nasty, racist, mm-hmm. cruel, and people like commit suicide out of these things. Mm-hmm. But if like, I wish there was like some, and obviously this will never happen because this is basically going to break the foundation of the internet. But like having some kind of internet driver's license, if you want to create a Google account, Instagram account, Facebook account, anything. It should be associated with some kind of master credential. That mm-hmm. way you can't just like create some like random account for two days, mm-hmm. harass somebody and then disappear in the middle of the night. You know, mm-hmm. but it just shouldn't work like that. But at the same time, how do you track that particular software? Like 
how do you make sure people don't create fake accounts? How do you make mm-hmm. sure there's so many technical limitations of it that like, I feel like maybe somebody in cryptocurrency will figure it out in five years. But mm-hmm. um, I mean, they're kind of doing that in China, right? Like um, my wife works for a Chinese company and the technology that they use for communication is like the Chinese WhatsApp and it basically just tracks everybody's communication, you know? Yeah. So, and then that's like Big Brother is starting to, starting to come in, so it's just yeah. like, it's tough. Yeah, well, that's like the it's like the the hard it's like a hard line between the internet driver's license and the Big Brother, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's I don't know. I there's definitely benefits to to being able to have an anonymous voice for, the, but yeah, you're right. There it can be abused as well for for the worse. And you know, in the in the utopian world, everything could be anonymous, but but also, like, nobody would be racist. Um, but, you know, that's not the world that we live in, so... Yeah, and, and I think it doesn't, like... I, it, and it comes back to the big brother and the trust of the government, because even right now, the FBI can just take your Google search history without even a warrant. So the mm-hmm. monitor, like, monitoring is there. I think the idea is that we have, like... And it's impossible, because I don't, but you have to trust the government not to, like take your information like without like the expressed need they have to say like hey we're taking your search in like the really should be like the contract is we know who you are we know what you're doing but unless we have probable and just cause like you committed a crime you're in cahoots to commit a crime somebody snitched on you so we know you're about to commit a crime we shouldn't be looking at your internet activity and i think that's just post like Mm 9-11 that control has just not been there so yeah. it's one of those things yeah mm-hmm. all right cool well i'm gonna wrap it up um matt kofi thank you guys a lot for joining really yeah thanks guys really thank appreciate you. having y'all's voices awesome awesome, cool. guys. awesome. thanks guys all right thank talk you. to you later all right guys how are we going